0: I founded the b Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. This podcast is sponsored by my friends at Pucker Herbs. Herbal teas are a fantastic way to increase your water intake and keep you hydrated throughout the day. A little fact for you all. Did you know that your first mechanisms switch on when you're already 2% dehydrated? And dehydration leads to fatigue and weakness. So switch the kettle on, pop a Pucker Tea bag in and sip away. I have had a long-term organic relationship with Pucker Herbs for many years now. And I'm so pleased that they are our official sponsor for Live Well, Be Well, Series 1. They are 100% organic and recognized by the Soil Association, as well as ethically sourced. Their newest tea, Peace Tea, has become part of my evening ritual routine and is one of my all-time favorites. Packed with hemp leaf and ashwagandha, these herbs help melt away my daily stresses. Thank you, Herb, so much for sponsoring this first series. Hi, Jenna, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. Hi there, I'm really good, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for joining me. I mean, this is an absolute pleasure. And um, I thought we might as well start, first of all, by really explaining about immunology and what you do and who you are if you could just give me a little bit of background on yourself and the field that you work in that would be fantastic.
1: Yeah so I'm an immunologist which means that I study everything about our immune system so this is something I kind of fell into many years ago uh, when I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life but I was (laughs) so interested in understanding the human body in health and disease and why you know things go wrong why do people get sick um, and I kind of stumbled upon this whole field of immunology and that just for me was was you know something I just fell in love with the subject um, and I've never uh, sort of looked back since.
0: Uh, Well, I mean, it's definitely topical now. We were just saying before we started recording this that, you know, now it's one of the hottest topics. Everyone wants to know about our immune system. And um, so I feel like you'll be very much in demand. So Mm -hmm. I thought a really good question to start off with was, I think, especially lately, many people picture the immune system as quite rigid divisions within the body. But actually, it's quite complex. Well, actually, not quite very complex may I say. Um, and I think it's probably a question you get asked a lot, but within limited amount of time, um, mm-hmm. due to the sheer, sheer complexity of what the immune system is, would you be able to kind of give us a rundown really of how how integrated is the immune system? How complex is it, is it? And what does it consist of?
1: Yes, I think that's a really good place to start. And like you say, um, I do think that People often refer to it as like a binary system. So mm. it's they think of it as one on-off switch. You want to turn it on, um, it fights infection, and then you want to turn it off again. But actually, I would call it more like a series of switches or a series of rheostats. Um, and it's a vast and, and complicated system, as you mentioned. It's kind of everywhere in their body. There's no part of your body that doesn't have some component of the immune system in it. Um, so it's this whole constellation of different cells and molecules we often talk about white blood cells these comprise our, our key players in the immune system and there's a whole different spectrum of those there's also all the barrier tissues to our body so we actually include these in our definition of the immune system so this includes things like the skin Uh, the delicate lining of the airways and the digestive tract. So anywhere that could be vulnerable to infection, Um, This is also part of our immune defense system. So in those barrier tissues, you also have um, special chemicals that the cells there will produce that try and keep that surface protected. And you also have the many beneficial bacteria that make up the different microbiotas that live on us and in us. And this is also part of our immune defense. So these are very integral to protecting those barriers. And then below the barriers, you'll have a whole spectrum of different cells that are like little listening posts, a diverse collection of white blood cells that um, are acting like sensors. They're hardwired to detect molecular patterns that would represent something going out of the ordinary. They also are eating germs and debris, and then they call back up when, you know, an infection occurs and it gets a bit out of hand. Um, so I think there's it's probably best to sort of divide these white blood cells into two halves so there's the innate and the adaptive system so the the first line defense these white blood cells that are sitting just below the barrier tissues these are really our innate cells they're kind of a foot first approach um they're very uh, vigorous and fast but they're not very specific so these are just very much there to be the first line of defense and then when they need some backup they call for their big brother, the adaptive immune system, which is much more specific. Um, And this is the, the part of our immune system that has a memory, it catalogues everything that we've been exposed to and remembers that. So together you have to have almost like a football team. Everyone has a different role to play and all those parts have to be functioning correctly for your immune system to have the best
0: chance of keeping you well. Well, that's really interesting. So how do we produce new white blood cells? Yeah, so this is actually
1: quite an interesting question and it's not one that many people ask me, but I think it's really important um, so we have stem cells in our bone marrow these are called hematopoietic stem cells, a particular type of stem cell, which means it can go on to become any one of those different white blood cells in our body of which there are many different types and I probably won't go down into <laughs> that uh, rabbit hole uh, but these stem cells they're like a blank canvas cell and they go on to become the different white blood cells that we need. So when you're well and you're healthy, you'll have a constant um, production of fresh new white blood cells. And the ones that are in circulation will eventually die when they get a bit older. And you have a a very um, homeostatic mechanism that stops you producing more than you need. We call this the immunological space. So you only have so much space in your body for white blood cells. So you cannot produce more than you need. It's, It's a very controlled system as a set point in our body. And then if we do get an infection, signals will happen wherever that infection has occurred. Inflammatory molecules will be produced and we will upregulate the production of some of these um, stem cells that go on to become fresh new immune cells that can sort of help fight the infection. And there's several different things that can impact how well we produce new immune cells. And these include um, Having too much um, adipose tissue, so fat tissue. So, if you're extremely Mm. overweight, some of that fat gets stored in the bone marrow where these new immune cells are being produced and actually stops them um, being produced as they should. Mm. Um, We also know things like uh, alcohol, so uh, excessive drinking can have an impact on these stem cells as well. And we also have to make sure that we're getting rid of the old cells that are already in circulation. Uh, So obviously, like anything, you know, every cell has its lifespan and as things start to age, they become more problematic and more likely that they might go wrong. So we need to make sure that we're getting rid of these old cells properly. Things that are important for that is getting regular exercise um, and uh, making sure that, you know, our overall health is taken care of. Good sleep is really important as well as a kind of calibration period where, you know, we can sort of, uh, remove any sort of cells that are a bit past their best and make space for fresh new ones to be produced.
0: I mean, there's so many questions that I want to lead on from, from that answer and I'm trying to figure out which one I touch <laughs> upon first. It really does show just how complex, just from that one answer and the 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 one before (laughs) of just how the immune is I'm sitting there going right there's now about 20 questions I want to ask you which one do I start with because as you say you just go down a rabbit hole with immunity um and immunology and I can't imagine what you know the students who are studying this you know the hours of all the different (laughs) areas that you go down is um I only remember I touched upon it very briefly um probably for like, you know, one lesson when I was studying nutritional science, just to look at really what immunology is. And you do really understand just Mm -hmm. how complex it is to study the subject. Um, So before I lead on to one of many more questions, I just want to kind of come back into the adaptive immunity, really, because I know that you actually mentioned um, that it has a memory. So um, I find that really interesting. And I don't really want to touch upon it too much because I feel that everybody is reading about, you know, SARS-CoV-2 at the moment, which Mm -hmm. is COVID-19. But I think there's a big question that's been circulating. And it's been one that when I put out on my Instagram that I was going to be speaking to my podcast, a lot of people wanted to know about, you know, will we have a long-term memory to protect us against this virus once we've got it? So once, you know, we're looking at herd immunity do we kind of have a long lifespan to protect us against this? Um, is that where the adaptive immunity response comes in? Is that the same kind yeah, of thing? so
1: this That's the, one of the key features of our adaptive immune system, that it does have this capacity to remember infections that we've seen. And it collects a little bank of uh, cells that are very specific for that infection. And these can be very long lived. Um, and they're doing things like producing antibodies that will protect us for the rest of our our life in some cases. Mm. Um, For certain infections, like um, chickenpox, many people will realise, oh, I got that as a child and then, you know, can go through life, never catching it again, despite being up close and personal with somebody who might have just got infected. And that's because we've got this bank of memory cells and these protective um, antibodies that are memory, memory antibodies that are stopping the infection in its tracks before it really gets a chance to take hold. Um, but you will also realise that that doesn't happen for every infection. And this has kind of been something that's been highlighted by the current pandemic, because I think it exposes some of the knowledge that we still don't quite understand mm. about um, the immune system. We don't quite know what key signals are needed to make this very long-lasting memory response? Um, why do some germs do this and others don't seem to? And it seems to be a, a potential feature of the lung and respiratory infections in general. If We think about things like influenza and the common cold. Mm. Not only did the viruses that cause these infections start to adapt their genetic material to try and evade our immune response but also our immune response becomes eroded over time it's not very durable it's not very long lasting Um, and this just seems to be a feature of infections that occur that way there's a few other infections that are slightly different where the infection moves from the lungs into the blood and when you get this response the immune system seems to really develop a strong memory but for the ones that are sort of contained in the airways, we don't seem to get really long-lasting, durable um, immune memory responses. Now, most of what what scientists are trying to do currently is look for clues from the previous coronavirus outbreaks of SARS and MERS from several years ago, Mm. and look at those patients and follow them up and see how durable was their immune memory. And it seems that for around 100 days after being infected, these uh, patients did still have protective antibodies. And for up to six years after infection, they could find protective cells from the immune system in their body. So I think it's likely wow. I'm sort of positive That positively is quite a long time. Op- it is. Yeah, I think it's encouraging. I think I feel quite positively optimistic that we will see those people who c- develop um, symptoms with coronavirus going on to develop um, protective immune responses. We don't know how long that will last. And I think time will tell. We just haven't been in the situation long enough to really understand if the you know this protective immunity will last. And there's also the question of people who are pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. They don't have a very um, strong response whether that's enough for them to develop protective antibodies or not. So I think testing is going to be really important as time goes on to help us figure this all out and put together the pieces of the puzzle.
0: Yeah, no, that is really um that is really interesting and, and good point, actually. If the people that are asymptomatic, which means they have mm-hmm. no symptoms, are they still going to have antibodies against it or not? Um, yeah. And just really quickly, just because we're touching upon it, but... The antibodies tests um, at the moment. I think is it serology. Is that how you say it properly? Yeah.
1: How, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's correct. What's the? I'm having a lot of people ask me about this. Actually, kind of what is? Um, well, how effective are they? Because I'm hearing that some some are effective and and some aren't, and there's kind of a sixty percent kind of chance that they are and I, I think a lot of people are confused about whether they should be getting these tests at the moment or not are they 100 yeah. percent accurate what's the accuracy around these tests
1: i think it's really confusing for people at the moment um i've actually been posting a lot on testing this week because i was getting a lot of questions about it and whenever i look at the news i think the messages coming out seem really confusing for people so um So serology, you're correct, that's the term that's used for looking in the blood for some kind of correlate of protection. And normally that's antibodies. They're quite an effective way of an indicator that the immune system has been switched on and done something. Now, we don't necessarily know if finding antibodies in your blood against coronavirus or whatever infection that you're interested in means that those antibodies are protective, because sometimes antibodies are just produced as a kind of byproduct of the whole immune system being switched on Mm. um we also don't know if some in some cases they can actually be problematic um but most of the time antibodies are protective and they're a good way of looking in the blood and seeing what um if if a person has seen that infection and developed um, this adaptive immune response to it but uh i think the most important message is that any test is a probability, but not a certainty, because even the best tests in the world may have, you know, issues with being 100% specific and 100% sensitive. Mm. Um, and the serology that tests that are being developed, normally it's around this ELISA system. So mm-hmm. people may have uh, seen or heard that being discussed. And there's a few problems with, with these tests in that, they might not, they're going to have a threshold of sensitivity. You know, they can't detect very, very, very small levels, There there's going to be a cutoff point. So if you have very low levels of antibody, it might just lie below that threshold and not pick up on a test. And there's also the problem of specificity. Because coronaviruses are part of a family, and they share commonalities, Mm -hmm. it's possible that, you know, me and you maybe have been exposed to one of the um coronaviruses already in circulation that cause a, a mild cold symptoms therefore we've developed antibodies to these coronaviruses and when the test is done to see if we've been exposed to the current coronavirus there's a cross reaction whereby the test shows positive because it's detecting antibodies to other coronavirus viruses from the family and you don't actually have protective antibodies for the current a yeah, new novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. So there, there's always, I mean, a good test would probably be around 97% uh, accurate, but there's always going to be a tiny, uh, you know, margin of error there. And when you start to multiply that up over a whole population of millions of people, you could see that the, the error suddenly becomes quite um substantial and could be problematic. But it's the best that we've got, I think, at the moment
0: no I think that's um I think that's really interesting just to say that it's never going to be 100% accurate Mm -hmm. and that's what I think some people might feel that they are maybe a bit misled by so just to hear that that actually you know the the 97% accuracy is high may I say but as you said when that kind of comes to a population basis there is quite a big um a a gap of accuracy there no that's really interesting actually so, I mean, I guess this kind of leads me a little bit on onto um, your book, which I do love. And I had to say, I read it all on the e-book, um, which was fantastic, making a lot oh, of notes. And so mm-hmm. it's the immunity, it's the science of staying well, um, mm-hmm. which I think we'll all find that very interesting to read currently at the moment. But you make a really good quote in there, which I love. And you said that your genes load the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really powerful comment because it's how I kind of approach uh, nutrition and food in a way. You know, um, there's a lot of different lifestyle changes and adaptions that you can do to help support your health. And for you, what you're saying is to support your immune systems. You know, what you're born with doesn't always necessarily mean, you know, that that's Mm -hmm. it. Um, And so I'd love for you to really kind of expand on 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 that wonderful comment because i know that goes a little bit into epigenetics and that's the study of how our genetic code is interpreted um, yeah. and which that could be manipulated by lifestyle factors so you know how important are our lifestyle factors because i think a lot of people are now looking really at how they're living their lives a little bit differently um and how important is that to kind of switch on certain genes with your immunity Yeah, I think
1: that's a really, uh, I mean, it's not my phrase, it's a phrase that's been used by so many people, but I just think it's really fitting Mm. that your genes load the gun, but your environment pulls
0: the trigger. It just really Um, kind of stopped me in my tracks when I read that, and I just thought, what a great, what a great comment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We're all kind of dealt a, a set of cards, a set of genes, and, you know, the immunity genes are quite unique. So the genes that encode for all the various components of our immune system are the most diverse uh, of any of our genes, perhaps. The um, the way that we inherit them from our parents is even quite unique compared mm-hmm. to other genes. And this makes sure that we're immunologically unique to our parents. And that's quite important in terms of survival of the species. It's also why we all respond slightly differently to infections. So we might all think of an example where you know my husband tends to get more colds and respiratory infections than I do um and so does his dad and so does my little boy and you know we might be living together in the same house Mm. and he might come home from work with a cold but I never seem to get it oh you're one of those really annoying
0: people that's always really (laughs) healthy aren't you I'm like your husband
1: (laughs) (laughs) but then, then the other thing I tend to uh if I look back I probably get more like um, tummy upsets and that those kind of things than he does ah. so it's kind of like we all have these genetic this genetic diversity we're all immunologically unique because if we all responded exactly the same way to the infection yeah. we would have died out as a species by now so it's it's being crafted by evolution that this you know this unique way that our immunity genes are passed down and recombined and keep being more and more diverse for every subsequent um generation so th- our collective um genetic diversity as a population t- is what keeps us well really so it's like the diversity within the community that's really important um and I think that that's kind of our baseline you know and there's not really a hierarchy you might you know be more likely to get certain types of infection but you're more protected from other things mm. so there's kind of this whole spectrum and we see this playing out with COVID-19 because we hear case reports of people who are being, you know, practically without any symptoms and then young and healthy people who are ending up on ventilators. And although this is quite extreme to see this playing out in front of us, it actually happens for a lot of different infections that you get this huge range of different responses. Mm. And it's partly down to this inherent genetic diversity that exists within our immunity. So then layered on top of that, you have all these different environmental interactions Um, and I often think your immune system needs sort of certain environmental inputs to work properly so all throughout your life it needs certain things that you're doing and feeling and seeing and being exposed to that are all important to calibrate it and shape it Um, but this gene environment interaction as you said the epigenetics Uh, is really a huge growing field that's, I think, going to really revolutionise how we think about our genes, because we only have a limited number of genes, but it's how they're expressed that's important. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one sort of good example to maybe try and, you know, illustrate this without getting too heavy on the science is um, eating dietary fibre. So we might have heard that fibre is important for us yeah. um, for many reasons and, you know, good digestive health. Um, when our microbiota and the gut digest that fibre, they produce uh, these things called short chain fatty acids, mm-hmm. particularly things like butyrate and propionate. So very sciencey names, but um, stay with me. It's, <laughs> it's uh, I'm going somewhere with this. But these these. um. Uh, molecules butyrate and propionate they're known as hdac inhibitors and what that means is they increase a, a certain process on the proteins that hold our genes together to make them more easy to be expressed so it's sort of like opening up a little package and showing that gene off and saying come and switch this gene on and these um molecules that are produced when we eat fiber do this and help the whole anti-inflammatory genetic uh, profile be more turned on in the gut so fiber by this process is actually changing the genes in your body and making a more anti-inflammatory environment so i think it's kind of a really beautiful way that's linking a simple process that we do each day in our diet to a really important long-term health effect which is to you know control inflammation in the body because there's a lot of things in our modern life that can be quite pro-inflammatory and that Mm. can be quite a toll on our body Um, so having these molecules produced by our gut microbiome is really important to shape the epigenetics of our genes and let the body turn on the more anti-inflammatory genes and um, which is really important to long-term health,
0: I mean, I love that I love the fiber fact. I always talk a lot about fiber for digestive health, um and mm-hmm. we're, m- we're massively lacking in fiber at the moment. Anyway, we're meant to be oh, thirty definitely. grams a day, and we're just about hitting fifteen grams a day in the UK. Yes, yeah. Um. So you know, it's more about. I talk a lot about it for digestive health, but it's just fantastic. It does link to. It, but the, actually, the anti-inflammatory properties that fiber yeah. have is something that you know. That's when I normally talk about oily fish and certain yeah. other f- uh, food choices that have you know anti-inflammatory purposes. But that's really interesting. That fiber also has anti properties that can switch and change your genes um that is yeah, one that i didn't actually know i'm writing know. Um, a post on fiber this week and i'm definitely going to include that from you in that oh please do
1: yeah that would be really yeah get the message out i think fiber has an image problem in the uk mm. <laughs> we need to kind of like sass it up a bit and get people to understand that fiber is not eating all brand <laughs> you
0: no exactly know, it's, so it's vegetables it's vegetables <laughs> yeah, it's legumes exactly. it's lots of pulses and beans foods. all the yes. plant foods um mm-hmm. i do try to say to, to my clients to eat at least you know 30 or more plant foods a week if you can and it's One of those good things that when we're in isolation, we have a little bit more time to maybe think about what we're cooking and, you know, the makeup of our plate and what's on our plate at the moment and are we having enough plant foods within our diet. Um, So I think this is a really good time to kind of maybe acknowledge fiber a little bit more um, (laughs) and see if it's going to be changing your genes in the process. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so, I mean, linking that because obviously... I talk a lot about fiber because of gut health and the gut brain axes that that has Mm -hmm. and the effect on it. But you also talk a little bit about our immunity being our second brain. Um, And I find that really interesting because that's something that I'd never thought of before, because um, our immune cells can sense and respond to environmental, hormonal Um, nutrients, and even brain signals, um, you say in your book. And so I just love you to kind of explain how immune cells can influence um, things like aggression or sexual attraction. Um, I found this (laughs) really fascinating. I'd absolutely love to hear more.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, for me, it, the Im- immune system is something that keeps opening up more strange um, twists and turns the more I learn about it mm. but yeah I, I like this concept of it being like our sixth sense or a second brain I mean it's it's there to protect us so we think about it as working when we have an infection and we get all those familiar symptoms of feeling unwell but it's actually working hard all the time um, and it does a lot more than just you know fending off germs so it kind of has to be integrated with the other systems in the body, um, and most notably the brain. So there's kind of this bi-directional communication between the brain and the immune system. And as you mentioned, the immune cells actually have receptors for, you know, neurotransmitters and hormones. So they're responding to all these other uh, signals that are going on in the body. Um, and of course they're also responding to our metabolism because it's very energetic to mount an immune response so they need to Mm. know what's available in the body um, and our nutritional status so it's kind of integrating all of these signals um, and it's very adaptable it has to be able to integrate signals from what you're thinking and feeling and what you're doing and then be able to respond appropriately It's probably most notable when we think about stress. Um, So the key stress hormone is cortisol. That might be one that people are familiar with. And, you know, the stress response is something we think of normally as psychological. We're feeling stressed. It's a very negative emotion. Um, And when we are stressed, it's actually a kind of very preserved response to get you out of danger even if you're distressed about your job it's it's going back to the the roots of where this response came from which was you know running for your life mm. and when you're running for your life it's not the time for your body to put energy into um you know fending off a head cold yeah you, you want all your energy into saving your life so you, cortisol is there to dial down the immune system and switch it off so that you're able to go ahead and um you know get out of danger and the same thing is happening in our stressful modern lives where we're less often running away from danger but more just sitting staring at our computers feeling stressed about um you know things that we have to do and fitting it into busy schedules and things so that's kind of one example of this um uh, interaction between Uh, you know how we're feeling and the immune system but it goes a bit deeper than that and we can start to look at different emotions that are producing different neurochemicals and um, you know feeling happy and laughter and the endorphins from feeling good this is actually nurturing a lot of the regulatory t-cells that exist in the immune system and they need those signals to work best then we have things like anger and aggression so this you know maybe when you're in a fight you might be about to get injured so your immune system becomes primed for inflammation because that would be the sort of first line defense if you received an injury or some bacteria might get into a wound so having a constant aggressive disposition can actually raise inflammation in the body and to me this Mm -hmm. is just kind of mind-blowing but my favorite one is probably the sexual attraction, as you said. So we we know that the um, genes that encode these compatibility molecules, we call them. So they're a special type of molecule our immune system uses to see things. Um, these are also linked to our, our olfactory uh, system, so our ability to smell. Mm-hmm. And it seems that. There's many studies that have looked at this um, quite a few years ago now, but really interesting studies that when we smell somebody that we're attracted to and we like that smell, it's normally because immunologically we're so different from each other and there's an attraction there because it's evolution's way of trying to put us together, tell us to have a baby and that baby is going to benefit from the fact that we're immunologically really different. By it inheriting those different sets of genes and becoming even more unique, um, and this again helps protect the collective community from infections. So it makes make sure that we still have this diversity within our our um, community, and I just think that's you know just crazy that we might be you know attracted to our partners on a level that's just not not just about attraction but about our immune system I just think it's incredible I
0: mean it's it, that just meant the saying that opposites do attract yeah yeah <laughs> <I> <laughs> there's a reason something that we none of us probably ever knew um that maybe we we like them because of, they're different to us inside as well as outside that's amazing yeah <laughs> that is incredible and also you know the whole aggression that you mentioned as well mm-hmm. I mean I guess that would state that people that had more of a tendency to be more aggressive had would be more of a suppressed immune system Would that yeah,
1: exactly I think you know we all know those characters that we might work with or interact with who who um you know might be very positive or happy or you know these different kind of extremes of personality traits that Mm. might really start to manifest in their physical health as well and i think that you know balance is key and all all emotions are there and they're valid but we can definitely get into a situation where you know we we're maybe manifesting too much of one type of emotion or Mm -hmm. um feeling that you know is actually having a real detrimental effect on our health without us realizing
0: i guess that just really heightens stress and do you think that mm-hmm. there's a massive i don't know maybe that's not a massive rise that's make me making a sweet statement there but i feel like there's more autoimmune conditions or now than ever before and um, maybe we're just more aware of them um and do you think that's got an impact to do with stress
1: Yes, definitely and um you know one of the interesting things is that you know men seem to be hit worse by infections, but women get more autoimmune diseases. Part of this goes down to the different roles that the female and male hormones play on the immune system, but part of it has been attributed to the rise in stress particularly in women um over the last sort of fifty sixty years, so that kind of represents a time where more women uh, Became working mums, Mm. Um, jobs became busier, more intense, they don't tend to end when you leave the office. Um, You know, and also the pressures on women maybe juggling childcare and work, uh, it seems that a lot of the kind of division of labor in the household hasn't shifted to reflect the fact that many families are dual working parents. And even if you don't have children, I think the pressures on women um, are slightly more intense than men in the workplace Mm. it's very hard to make these sort of general statements but I do think this is contributing to the overall derailing of you know the immune balance that's important um, and could feed into this rise in autoimmune conditions that we're seeing particularly in women
0: yeah, I mean, I, get, I was speaking to, um, it was the first episode of this podcast actually, when I was speaking to Owen Parry, and she said that women don't tend to be as affected by COVID 19 as much as, as men are, but it's mm-hmm. because they are also more susceptible to autoimmune conditions.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a weird trade off, you know? Yeah. Um, nothing is kind of black and white in the immune system, it's all shades of grey. So the better you are at fighting infections, The more risk you might have of other more unfortunate conditions, and um, yeah, it's quite uh, it's quite sad that this is how it is. But it's kind of a sliding scale, um, rather than just being a sort of fixed one or the other
0: situation. No, I mean that is uh, even from this podcast. I hope people realise the complexity of the immune system because (laughs) there is definitely shades of grey, and it's definitely not black and white. But I think that is with a lot of science, it is always Mm -hmm. forever changing, and. I mean, before I go on to a bit more about, um, you know, I want to talk to you about some myths that have been out there recently and misconceptions. But Mm -hmm. before I do that, I'd love to talk to you about um, NCDs, which are non-communicable lifestyle diseases. Um, And if people don't know what that is that are listening, um, it's essentially diseases which you can't catch. So it's Mm -hmm. things such as diabetes or heart disease or mental health um, problems or certain cancers, chronic lung conditions. Um, so there's a variety of things. And what we're seeing is that essentially um, over the last, especially kind of 50 years, people seem to be becoming more sick in the absence of infection. So we spoke a lot about infection and, yeah, fighting infection, but actually it's now people seem to be becoming a lot sicker um, when infection isn't involved and I always find that really um, interesting because the leading causes of death, 70% worldwide, are due to NCDs now. And we've just been yeah. talking about how we can you know, adapt certain environments and lifestyle factors to help with our immunity. But poor diet has been shown to be one of the leading risk factors for diseases worldwide. Um, but the really good news here is that it's modifiable. So as much as these, um, our diet quality has gone down, especially um, in the Western world with the increase of ultra-processed foods that make up two-thirds of our shopping baskets now, um, and, you know, um, sugar drinks, um, sugar-sweetened beverages, um, how important is it, diet, really, for our immune system? And I know there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about out there, and I, I definitely want to touch upon that, but diet and nutrition does have a role to play and I'd love to hear from your point of view as an immunologist you know where do we seem to be going wrong with approaching nutrition
1: yeah so I guess I've got some sort of maybe more uh, I don't know different uh, sort of reflections on that mm-hmm. Um I think what you've said about non-communicable diseases is really important actually what made me write the book was. You know, I'd spent all all these you know, years since the late 90s studying the immune system and learning that everything we found out about it was through uh, knowing what happens during infection and then suddenly realising that most people are not dying from infections anymore. Mm. It's, it's these non-infectious diseases that are the main um, problem. And mm. so that, that was the main trigger to write the book. And I started thinking about how the modern life that we lead is not really conducive to a healthy immune system yeah. I didn't expect to be releasing the book in the middle of a global <sighs> viral pandemic though so.
0: very good so time like, I have to say
1: <laughs> yeah it's kind of like I was thinking about non-infectious <laughs> diseases but then okay there's a huge pandemic so infection's still important yeah but um but yeah going back to diet it, it is obviously it's a huge part of it and I I to me, it feels so complicated because I think it's a, it's a societal issue. It's um like a psychosocial issue, it's a social economic mm-hmm. issue because our food environment is so different right now. Um, it's very obesogenic,
0: it, isn't it? Our food yeah, environment. It, I mean. On top
1: of the life load that people have, you know, busy job, commuting, you know, responsibilities outside of work um, you know, other projects you're working on, wanting to go to the gym and have leisure time and see Mm. friends and, you know, family duties or whatever you have going on then on top of that you're constantly bombarded with marketing and signs and food shops and everything around you telling you you should eat and you're just having a really like rubbish day and you know are you going to go home and start chopping vegetables from scratch and making yourself a really nutritious delicious meal if you've had a bad day probably not Mm. you're just going to open the floodgates because it's all around you, it's it's like crushing, you know the the sort of marketing and stuff. So, yes, I kind of think that's our first hurdle collectively that we all need to battle with, having the sort of mental resilience to make the right food choices in an environment that's actually telling us to make the opposite food choices. Um and I think this is going to be a huge part of this rise in non-communicable diseases, which are, Um, largely driven by uh, lifestyle factors with food being one of the the biggest ones and what I tried to focus on in the book was to more think about your overall diet that you're you're eating not what you've eaten today not how many nutrients you've got into your meal um, but what is the overall picture like week to week month to month because I think that's you know what we should be aiming for having an overall diet pattern that is really serving as well. And then you're always gonna have those days where you are just ground down and you're not gonna eat the food that you really that really would serve you well right now. Mm. And the biggest issue is you know the food um that's all around us, it's it's just hitting the bliss point. It's just too tasty. It's the stuff that, like you say, sugar sweetened beverages, by drinking that you're just consuming a huge load of um sugar additional calories and things that you might not need in in you know a few minutes mm. it's it's there's even been studies that shown that the sort of texture of the food that makes it so easy to eat quickly is part of the problem because then you're just on a fast track to over consume calories easily because it's just so delicious
0: yeah um, well your brain so this doesn't sort of, acknowledge um sugar sweet beverages as a high high energy intake um exactly so it just feels like a drink exactly quenching you know, that thirst and, yeah yeah and i think this is you know something
1: we need to sort of give ourselves a break that it's hard the environment makes it hard and you know that's not our personal fault and people don't need to be feeling guilty about eating badly because the guilt is also you know not going to be healthy for our overall um you know our overall body and so I think that you know this is the first concept when it comes to non-communicable diseases is I think that we're just eating too much of the wrong foods mm. and being in an, a state of what I call overnutrition, so over consuming calories regularly Um, is really damaging for the immune system. So the body has to store that extra energy somewhere when it affects our body composition. So if we're not exercising enough, we reduce our lean muscle mass and we increase our um, white, white fat tissue. So especially the stuff around the waist, this is these are immunologically active tissues so the fat and muscle are now considered to be part of our immune system because we have a lot of immune cells in there uh, and this balance if it shifts too far creates an overall state of inflammation which then feeds into all of these um, non-communicable lifestyle related diseases so i think that's like the biggest issue um, and then on top of that you have the fact that people are probably not eating enough fiber Um, you know not eating a a diversity of uh, fruit and vegetables uh, throughout the week and you know all the other things that start to piece together on top of that.
0: Mm. No I would say to anyone who's, um, who's listening a really good kind of way to make sure that you're getting your fruit and vegetables is just try to make a note of how many portions you're having a day and then have a look overall in a week really how many you're consuming mm-hmm. and each week you can then kind of add to that if you're not hitting if you're only having 15 a week then you can kind and see how you can add more in next week and as you said it's more of the overall picture and do you you actually mentioned something really interesting about um kind of over consuming food and Mm -hmm. I think that's also important to note that sometimes when we are eating too much maybe eating too much of the wrong food we can also be very malnourished
1: and I know that when we
0: are malnourished a lot of people look at malnourishment as you know people that um, restrict their eating very heavily and are having a very limited amount of energy and taking calories however it can go both ways you do see a lot of people that are on the obesity spectrum but are Mm -hmm. also very malnourished. So they are eating the wrong types of foods and they're not gaining enough vitamins um, and minerals that they need because they're not having enough fresh produce in their food. So they are essentially malnourished. And again, I can imagine that is going to lead to a a more dampened immune system. Either way, whether you're over-consuming too many ultra-processed foods or whether you're severely restricting your food, it both puts stress and strain, I I imagine, on your immune system.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's really important. And, you know, if people are interested in eating for their immune system. Then the first thing is to try and have an energy balance, you mm. know, not over consuming and not under consuming. And then start to layer on top of that, making sure that you're getting all of the important micronutrients that you need, like the vitamins and minerals. Because um, there's often a lot of emphasis on one or two particular micronutrients yes, but actually you very, know we kind of need the whole composite to, to, for the immune system to function well um, and yeah. I do think there is much less information mm-hmm. on the health effects when micronutrient status is suboptimal so not mm-hmm. we're not clinically deficient but we're just not getting enough overall and I think that's probably something that could be quite pervasive in our society but
0: mm-hmm. isn't
1: something that's maybe measured and studied so uh, deeply.
0: No, I think that's really yeah that I think that is I'm completely in agreement with you there, especially with you know more of our eating habits now than ever before. Um, mm-hmm. I see it with a lot of my clients that come into clinics sometimes they think that they're they're eating to the optimal health, but most of it is processed foods, whether it's mm-hmm. living on protein shakes or um you know protein bars they're still ultra processed and um i think a lot of people there's a big misconception it's marketing isn't it at the end of the day your sold products because you think they're healthy and convenient and actually it can be the the opposite effect i mean and that takes me really on to a round that i really want to talk to you about which is all of these Mm -hmm. misconceptions about Mm -hmm. um you know, certain, as you said, certain one micronutrient. And I think it's a great point that you just made, and I try to speak about this a lot on my Instagram, actually, is, you know, all of our vitamins and minerals all work together in synergy. There's not Mm -hmm. just one of them going around doing everything. They all kind of need each other. And if one's out of balance, it can affect the others. Um, And so there's been a lot of misconceptions going around right now, which I know that you're very aware of because you post about this a lot on your Instagram. Mm -hmm. But it's about certain um, vitamins or certain foods that can essentially, and I'm going to say the word that I agree, with, that that can boost your immune system, which um, is quite an incorrect term and a misleading term. Um, I'd love for you to first of all explain why it's misleading, like, you know, boosting our immune system. Um, yeah. And really, I'd then also love to kind of go through a few different things um, vitamins and food sources that are in the public eye a lot and whether they do have any effect on the immune system really if there's any evidence for it at all so I'm
1: glad you brought up the boosting (laughs) yeah I mean (laughs) whenever I talk to journalists and stuff and I'm like please don't write immune boosting and then they always put like quote me as saying immune thing. Oh. so if anyone's ever seen that then I'm, I'm sorry yeah
0: no I mean I completely but, um, agree with you I always get press releases saying how can you boost your immune and I was sitting there pulling my hair out, being like no this is so wrong <laughs> I think that you know unfortunately
1: it is a term that people understand and mm. um, it's a term that the general pu- public do reach for because they see it and and they hear it and I kind of get what people mean so I'm really sympathetic to it I know that I see some people, um, you know, on social media, like really poo-pooing it and be like, oh, there's no way to boost your immune system. But I'm like, you Mm. know, people don't understand that. If you've Mm. not studied it, Mm. then it's an easy mistake to make. And it's kind of a case of semantics, you know. people just want to know what can they do to make their immune system be working at its best.
0: And I think that's um, what we need to approach. As you've already said, two things such as alcohol yeah. and obesity, you know, we know those two things yeah, can exactly. dampen it. So, I mean, so what does it really mean of, we're not boosting it, but I guess it's a term of, you know, how can we maintain good immune health? Yes,
1: exactly. Get it working to its best. You know, we've already discussed that there's sort of certain genetic differences that might be, you better or worse place to fight off certain things but mm. you know the, the immunity is really about the long game trying to keep things working as well as they can for as long as they can um and so we don't want to boost it because essentially that would be an overactive immune system and this is not uh, really ideal in fact when we think of covid 19 the the you know really really sick patients that are ending up in the hospital it's normally because their immune system is overshooting and causing damage to their own bodies because a lot of the weapons that it uses to fight infection are actually also quite damaging to our own delicate tissues. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this, you know, as much as we need to switch an immune system on, we need to regulate it. We need to resolve and recover and heal and repair. So these are all different parts of the immune system. It's kind of like a cyclic process. It's just not this, you know, on boosted, then off again switch. And when it comes to particular supplements, there was a study that was done at Brighton and Sussex Medical School, um, where I work uh, down here in Brighton, that looked at the Google searches for immune boosting. And they found that the majority of Google results that came back were based on um, pseudoscience or mm-hmm. inappropriate claims. So most of it will be things that are trying to be sold to you on some pretense. And they often um, figure around a few key. Nutrients that include things like vitamin C um, and zinc, mm-hmm. and that's because when we are fighting an infection, when we have all those uncomfortable symptoms of feeling unwell, our immune system starts to use huge, huge amounts of vitamin C and zinc. So they're just really important as part of that response. But the, you know, if you're eating a healthy diet, then it's unlikely that you're deficient in vitamin C or zinc unless mm-hmm. you have specific. Um, diet choices and it's quite easy to recover that after you've um, yeah, got over your sickness. Uh, so there is maybe some evidence that taking extra vitamin, and C, vitamin C and zinc when you get sick might shorten the duration of the illness um, and this has normally been done in colds and flu situations. Particularly if you're very busy or, you know, have a very stressful life or do a lot of exercise, these uh, nutrients might be even more important during that time that you're fighting an infection. But like yeah. I say if you have a good
0: diet, then
1: mm. you may not need to supplement or you might not notice it'd be such a small improvement.
0: Yeah, because I think all the ones that I've seen with vitamin C I've done are done on endurance athletes. Yeah. And it's literally yeah. meant to reduce the symptoms of a common cold by a day. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Most people probably wouldn't be
0: even be aware uh, of yeah. that reduction. Um
1: I know that there are some trials using extremely high doses of vitamin C for COVID. Oh yeah,
0: the intravenous patient,
1: ones. Yeah. But this is obviously done in a clinical setting. Those patients may also be receiving other treatments because at this point it's, you know, a very critical time. So the the physicians looking after them may also be using other things and just monitoring and doing case reports around that. So vitamin C is very important when we're sick, but it's very unlikely these days that anyone is deficient. And I think that goes for looking across the board of essential vitamins and minerals. Mm -hmm. The reason that we put so much emphasis on individual nutrients is because when we are deficient in them, we are normally more likely to be susceptible to infections, and we do take longer to recover. Mm. But that doesn't necessarily mean taking more than you need when you're not deficient is going to make your immune system work any better than it does already. So I think that's the kind of difference...
0: I think some um, people don't also look at the detrimental effects of maybe taking too much as well Yeah. because if you're taking too much of a su- fat soluble vitamin such as vitamin E or vitamin K or vitamin E or vitamin A especially vitamin A, a, a yeah. if you're pregnant yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, you know these are actually toxic to our bodies and we yeah, store them, exactly. we can't get rid of them and I know there was quite a few studies stopped last year from high intakes of vitamin A and it showed increased risks in prostate cancer in men and I think that's yeah. the thing many of us buy so many supplements now and mix them and actually don't realize that these are doubled in a lot of the supplements that you're taking and that can actually be very detrimental whereas vitamin c is necessarily not toxic to our bodies because it's a water-soluble vitamin and that means that if you have you know too much in your body you would just excrete it out through your urine but we do know that you know up to a thousand milligrams which is a very high quantity um Mm -hmm of this a day can actually cause a lot of like gastric problems and diarrhea yes. so mm-hmm. it's that kind of thing if you're getting food first which we essentially want you to do because the bioavailability yeah. and how much you uptake these vitamins, we don't know but there is actually kind of a downside to taking too many sometimes as well so
1: yeah exactly we kind of have a more is more attitude that's evolved mm, but it's yeah. actually you know some is good more is not always better and normally food first yes yeah you know, then it, you're going to be probably eating all the fiber and stuff that you also need if you're trying to get your nutrition from your meals. So again, I think there's a lot of um support to start to look at uh, the whole overall diet and what you're eating. Definitely. Probably vitamin D is like the, the exception. I think very few people in my field would argue that yes. vitamin D isn't uh, essential for the immune system. And it is one that we may get deficient in if we live in the UK or somewhere where there's um seasonal changes in the amount of daylight that we get exposed to mm-hmm. definitely um, especially if you're seeing indoors a lot more at lockdown it could be worthwhile continuing to supplement as we move from April into May and yeah um,
0: well public health summer. guidelines are saying now 10 international mm-hmm. units a day if, if you're not getting out for your yeah. kind of 30 minutes of exercise do try to um take a supplement but Moving away from that, what about echinacea? That's something that I always feel is um, people, when they get sick, they want to go to, you know, their their closest kind of food store and say, right, I'm going to get some echinacea to stop getting sick. But is there any evidence for that?
1: Yeah, I mean, there is. There have been quite a lot of studies done. So there's, in essence, a large volume of evidence that it might be helpful These studies are not always the, you know, the biggest, most robust because with any more alternative therapy, it's not normally um, receiving the sort of same funding and stuff to do. It's also complicated by the fact that there's different species of the echinacea plant, and there's all different parts of the plant that contain different active ingredients. So I think there's around 800 different products that could be derived from the echinacea plant. Wow. And there's not really a consensus on the best formula to take and what dose to take or how long for. And it might actually interfere with certain medications. So I think that that's probably the biggest caveat when it comes to echinacea. I think if people take it and it works for them and they're not on any medications, then you know there might be an element of placebo effect. There might be an element that it is working, but it's not something that I would personally feel I would spend money on just mm-hmm. knowing that there could be huge differences in in what's bioavailable in the different products.
0: Well, and it's okay. And so what about elderberry?
1: Yeah, again, elderberry, I think, is uh, sort of an old fashioned kind of remedy. Mm. Um I did quite a lot of research into elderberry when I was looking into the uh, book and there's there is quite a lot of scientific studies that have been done on it, including studies in humans so not just sort of animal test tube studies but they were all funded by a company that makes the the elderberry syrup I don't remember the name but one that's common that you can buy in um, the pharmacies and health food shops so Mm. they're very small studies um, showing that marginal differences you know in how you feel when you get a cold or flu when you take this um uh, product, mm-hmm. uh, so you know it's a bit of a caveat that they're not going to publish data that's not showing an an effect.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. There's components of the elderberry that have been studied and shown to prevent viruses from actually getting into our cells in the first yeah. place, though. Uh. So there is, you know, there is evidence that it's it's got antiviral properties. Um. It's also a source of vitamin C and different phytonutrients that you know, would be helpful for the immune system. Mm. Um, It's also been shown to make our immune cells work a little better than they do uh, when they're, you know, studied in a test tube. How this translates to, you know, me or you taking some elderberry syrup, nobody knows yet. But um, I've sort of put out a few things on social media around elderberry. When it started to evolve that with COVID-19 people were experiencing an overshooting of the immune system and I thought it's probably best to stay away from any um, supplement that's been shown to help your immune cells work better in causing inflammation to protect you because Mm. it could be problematic in this particular infection because we don't know much about it. Um, So again, probably there's little harm in the doses that are available in the products that you can buy. I'm in in stores but you know the evidence is overall quite weak i would
0: say and you know what that's just what's so interesting people hearing this actually know you were you know you knew that there was some some limited evidence Mm -hmm. to show that there could be effects in these however you didn't want to say it because you know that could be detrimental to this specific virus exactly and it shows like you know not every single study that's out there that might show evidence is going to be relatable to that exact situation Yes, and I think exactly. that's what's really important just to kind of also understand is, yes, these things could be, you know, might have a little bit of an effect, but actually it could be detrimental in the situation, as you said, because it could be shooting your immune system too much. So yes. I think that's kind of looking at the full picture. I think that's. What I'm getting a lot from this uh, this podcast is is looking at the full picture, and you know it's not just <laughs> it's not as easy as everyone thinks it is of just taking some echinacea. Um, yeah. So I guess like finishing off, it's something that has been talked about a lot in the last year or two is sleep. Now, everyone seems to be much more aware of how much sleep they're having. Um, it's something that I speak to a lot of my clients about because it impacts your hunger hormones a lot if you're sleep deprived um, and your cravings and I just thought that actually with your immune system you have a massive area in your book dedicated to sleep and the importance of sleep and I'd love for you just to maybe touch upon like why is sleep so important for our immune system?
1: Yeah I mean part of the reason that I spoke about sleep so much in the book was because Mm. of my own um, relationship with sleep that just started to become quite eroded uh, as I um, juggled being a mum and having a full-time job and numerous other projects that I was involved in and the you know I'd find myself going to bed with my mind whizzing 100 miles an hour and I just couldn't sleep and I actually ended up getting pneumonia which was really embarrassing because (laughs) I mean yeah I should really know better Mm. Um, but you know there's a lot of evidence that if you're not getting enough sleep you will pick up infections more easily Mm. than the natural killer cells. So these are white blood cells that are really important for viruses, but also important for um, our general cancer surveillance. So the immune system is actually our, our key cancer surveillance system. So these natural killer cells go around and pick off any potentially cancerous cells. We know that these are profoundly impacted by poor sleep. So that leaves you, you know, you get up, go to work the next day after a really bad night's sleep. You're just already more vulnerable to infection as you go about your daily life and mixing with people and germs and everything so it's it's so important. there's also the question of what constitutes enough sleep. I think the best estimates is between seven and nine hours, mm. but it also depends on what's going on in your life. so if you train at the gym pretty hard or you have particularly busy life or you know a lot of stress going on, you might need more sleep than that um, and it's also about the quality of sleep you know if you drink a bottle of wine and face plant into bed mm. you might feel like you've got the deepest sleep going on ever but actually the the different sleep cycles will probably have been quite impacted by the alcohol so that can affect the sleep quality uh, in a sense so sleep's really important for immunity and a lot of things happen when we sleep so the main sleepy hormone is a uh, melatonin which actually kind of calibrates the immune system. It's again, very anti-inflammatory. So it helps get rid of any unwanted inflammation in the body. Um, And it's also helpful for um, producing these new, fresh new immune cells from the bone marrow stem cells. And it helps get rid of some of the old uh, cells that are going wrong as they age. So it's kind of a real calibration time. Also, if we are sick, we might feel more sleepy. Um, and this is a signal that's telling you to rest. So uh, we spoke earlier about how the immune system and the brain interact. And when we get sick and our body produces these special chemicals called cytokines, they're actually acting on the brain to change your behavior into something called sickness behaviors. And this is like instructing your body to do what it needs to do in order for you to recover quickly. And that might be, you know, those familiar symptoms you have of feeling sleepy, socially withdrawn, you know, loss of appetite, all of those different things that you might feel when you have the flu, for example. Um, so it's it's telling you to rest, telling you to sleep. So there's this real close relationship between um the immune system and sleep and it's it's like the foundation that everything else uh, lies upon I think I mean I don't know about you but if I don't get a good night's sleep oh, I'm just I'm not awful. the same person the next day I can't function I'm not so productive I, I start to engage in like less helpful behaviors as mm. well you know if you're tired you prop yourself up with caffeine mm. you're more likely to have a real slump in the afternoon and reach for some foods that you know, are not um, going to serve you well at that mm-hmm. point. So there's a kind of spiral
0: that's associated with poor sleep. I think that
1: also leads to these less helpful behaviors coming through.
0: Oh no, absolutely. I mean, I'm exactly I'm somebody that desperately needs my sleep. Um, mm-hmm. and I have a funny story. I was actually meant to be getting a puppy last week, and the fear oh, of yeah. not. Um, I mean, sadly because of COVID-19, I could I couldn't pick him up. But oh. I mean, the fear that was. Put on me of not not having sleep (laughs) I heard from people you have to get up every two to three hours to let your puppy out and I was thinking oh my goodness (laughs) I'm not going to be able to work and the the anxiety that came over a lack of sleep because I am someone it's definitely that needs a good kind of eight to nine hours sleep if so I can function um but it does it has a massive kind of impact on obesity as well. You know, we yes, know that, yeah. you know, the, the less sleep you have, the more risk you are of of, of, of being a beast. So I think your sleep is is so important. But I find that really interesting that you actually have specific signals to, to tell you to slow down. I think sometimes you just think that when you're sick, you need to stop. But mm-hmm. you do actually have chemical processes and your cytokines are sending signals saying, please yeah. sleep, please rest.
1: Um,
0: exactly. That's really, that's, that is really, that will make me think next time, I think a lot of people, maybe it's me, but especially when I do start to feel a bit run down, I don't want to stop. I just feel like I can plough through, I can plough through and I can get on with it and Um, yeah
1: I know what you mean I think that's a cultural thing that we we've developed you know we go to the pharmacy and buy all these over-the-counter cold and flu remedies which are basically things with painkillers and paracetamol Mm. you know and um, uh, caffeine inside so that we can still go to work even though we're not well we Mm. should be at home we should take that one or two days to rest and then we'll probably recover faster so you know but we've kind of evolved to override our innate signals because you know it feels like we're always on the treadmill and there's always things to do and being sick's kind of an inconvenience almost Mm -hmm. um yeah and i'm exactly the same so it's like a you know a lesson that we all need to learn and a a culture shift i think we all need to be a part of
0: okay that's that's, no that is really i'm gonna remember that next time i Become run down. Now I just want to do a little quick fire round. Um, because I was asked a lot of questions on Instagram. And so I thought if you can answer yes or no, that would oh, be yes. great. But if they need <laughs> a, a sentence afterwards, I completely understand. <laughs> okay, so here is our quick fire round. Are most people infectious? before they get symptoms with COVID-19?
1: Yes, I'd say pretty much from the data
0: that I've seen. Okay. (laughs) If the symptoms are mild, are you less infectious? Uh, Potentially not.
1: Um, Maybe for some people, but I think overall, that doesn't necessarily make you less infectious.
0: Okay. That's good to know. Um, why are colds and the flu more prevalent in the winter?
1: Oh, there's a couple of reasons the cold the viruses that cause the common cold, things like rhinovirus and influenza virus, like these cooler climates more, so they're they're just sort of happier in those. We think of them as seasonal, but they kind of shift around the globe following the different um seasons. And there's other reasons, you know. In winter, we're more likely to stay indoors and huddle together, so it's easier for these viruses to transmit. Um, we might get low on vitamin D, which is also shown to make us more susceptible because there's less sunlight. So there's like a few things
0: going on. Okay, very integrated as we as we are finding out from this podcast. <laughs> um, this is one I actually really liked when I saw this question: Is cough syrup effective? Uh, I think it's actually been
1: no, it's no longer recommended by the nhs Um, it's i think it's not not effective and it may have more problematic side effects so i think honey is now the go-to that the nhs recommends to soothe the cough
0: oh that's oh i do like i do i do like some honey um yes. <laughs> and lastly does our immune um, system weaken with age
1: Yes, unfortunately, um, that's true. In fact, aging is considered a form of immune deficiency. But the really great thing is that your immunological age doesn't necessarily reflect your chronological age. So there's been studies done looking at 70 year olds who are keen cyclists or engage in lots of healthy activities, healthy behaviours. Um, you know, take care of themselves that have an immune system that is as healthy as a 30 40 year olds and then you have sedentary 20 somethings who have an immune system that is you know several decades older than their actual age so it's something that's in our control it's something that made me want to write the book because we might all be thinking about immunity right now because of COVID-19 but immunity is for life it's Mm -hmm. not just for a pandemic it's for the long game it's that's to me the most important thing.
0: No, do you know what? And I have that view with nutrition as well. Some people always mm-hmm. want a quick fix or to go yeah. on a certain diet, but it's a lifestyle, it's an habitual lifestyle change. And I think that's yeah. when that's the same with immunity. It's not a quick fix. There's no, no exactly. quick boost as as we now know. Um it's the long-term change, which is really important. Okay, so well, I would love to end the podcast on um really what I ask everybody, and that is what does live well be well? mean to you I think um yeah again
1: going back to my last point it's about the long game and and just being kind to yourself Mm. um there's all these different levers to our health and some might be easy for you to pull you might have your diet nailed down you know your sleep is good but there's always going to be something that's our Achilles heel and you know that you might need to give a little bit more focus to like Maybe getting enough exercise or doing the right kind of exercise that serves you your body well. But you know don't neglect the other levers. and even if you're doing everything right, we don't live in an ideal world. and I think we can lock ourselves in a kind of dark place thinking, but I'm doing everything right and I still don't feel good or you know, and that can be stressful in itself. So you know, just kind of try and nail the basics and it's about what you do most of the time um, that's gonna make you live well and be well.
0: Um, for the long game yeah i completely agree with all of that it is all about the long-term game oh thank you jenna so much that was so no informative and um thank you thank you for taking time out of your busy day to chat to me That's okay yeah thank you for having me it's been lovely would you to tell all of our listeners where they can find more information on you What's your instagram handle um website yeah, so
1: I'm most active on Instagram and that's um Dr. Jenna Machocki, so it's dr underscore Jenna underscore Machocchi, which is M-A-C-C-I-O-C-H-I. I'm also on Twitter as Dr J Mac, so D-R-J-M-A-C-C. And then I now have a website which is Dr Jenna Machy. Um and yeah, the books on Amazon audiobooks as well in kindle Mm -hmm. um yeah so if you find me on social come and say hi and get in touch
0: amazing thank you i'm saying i would do highly recommend the book i got it on an ebook and it was it was magnificent so thank you for sharing that with us and have a lovely day thank you for listening to live well be well please do share with your friends and help spread awareness of this podcast. I hope these conversations inspire you to create a positive change in your life. And if you do like the podcast, please do leave a review. Until next time, live well and be well.